From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with award-winning singer, songwriter, and arranger, Jennifer Warren, about the incomparable legacy of Leonard Cohen. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling like their father or their dog just died everybody talking to their pockets everybody wants a box of chocolate and a long stem rose everybody That was Leonard Cohen singing Everybody Knows. Leonard Cohen defies definition. The eclectic singer, songwriter, poet, novelist, wrote lyrics that penetrated the soul. His dark cynicism, buttressed by the possibility of love, helped listeners find comfort in the discomfort of ambiguity. Cohen died in 2016. September 21st would have been his 85th birthday. As we on the Public Morality remember his life and legacy, my guest is singer, songwriter, and arranger Jennifer Warrens. The Warrens may be best known for her 1982 duet with Joe Cocker, Up Where We Belong, from the movie An Office and a Gentleman, and her 1987 duet with Bill Medley, I've Had the Time of My Life, from the movie Dirty Dancing. She also had a nearly 50-year professional collaboration with Leonard Cohen. We are honored to have her on The Public Morality. Jennifer Warrens, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much. Uh, How do you define Leonard Cohen artistically? Uh, A man who loves words and who uh, understands the alchemy of groups of words and what they, uh, the effect that they have on people over a long period of time, and uh, he's able to, uh, he's a writer who's able to bring um, more humanity 
into lyrics than we're accustomed to. Is that good? That's good. That's good. That, that's, that's a great start. Um, when did you first meet Leonard Cohen? That's, that's the now mystery question. That's, that's the, now, now we're going to the mystery segments, yes. Now. Yeah, 1962, <laughs> there was a Festival of Nations at the YWCA in Santa Ana, California, and I was representing the United States in a musical program, and Leonard was representing Israel with a cantor Goldstein uh, chanting behind him. And uh, that's where I first met him. And, and how did you all connect um, uh, artistically and with your collaborations? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we were just working our way up, see? <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's uncannily strange the way it's popped up from time to time. I've known him for 60 years now. Had. And um, the second time I met him was uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, when we were both playing uh, concerts that night. And then the next time was uh, Nashville, when I auditioned for the Bird on a Wire tour of 1971, 72. And then we became friends after that, you know, we hung out a lot in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then I got involved in his music, you know, in helping him arrange. And and then uh, up until his passing, you know, I was singing on the last record. And, uh, now, now, yeah. you, now, I did a little research, not a lot, just a little, did a little research. And um, I found a quote, and I'm, so I'm paraphrasing, I'd like to have you expand. But you, but you basically stated you made a decision early on to be exclusively an, an artistic and creative friend only. Uh, yeah, he had too many women. <laughs> okay, there, there, this sums it up. Yeah, he had too many women. It was a, it was a, it was a, not honoring myself to get involved. But we had such a, uh, a comfortable uh, chemistry that we just naturally fell into a lot of projects together. So it's hard to say, it's hard to, you know, sum it up in a, in a sentence or two when you're speaking of a friendship that's that long, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it covered a lot of bases. Now, looking on the outside as I am, whatever title one wishes to bestow on, on, on Leonard Cohen he he transcends those titles. Is he a you know a poet, a writer, an artist, an author, um, and he transcends them in, in my words in, in very sometimes rather dark mystical ways. Then at other times he seems to be grappling with the complexities of the human condition. And as someone who worked close to him, how how did you see him? Did you see what I saw? Did you did you see yeah. something totally different? Yeah, uh, he, all of that. He had a very, um, uh, um, had a very high artistic standard that he put himself through, and he worked harder than everybody, and he spent longer hours at the table, you know, than everybody. So he had that on his side, and he had an incredible understanding of human nature, and and uh, but he was he was the son of a. a, a, a escapee from the Russian pogroms, and so he um, 
had a, a deep understanding of sorrow and danger in the world. And uh, he had a great deal of heart for the people who suffer. So that uh, that creeped into the music quite a bit. And he was a he was a handsome guy and and very uh, fun to be with. And he made uh, you know just having a cup of coffee be a, a extraordinarily miraculous thing <laughs> event. And so he had a lot of he he covered a lot of bases. Yes, I agree with you. And see, see that's amazing. You, you, your the, the analogy you just gave when you said he could make a cup of coffee seem like this this major event, and you you saying that almost confirmed what I fit, what I feel when I'm listening to his music. And, and usually, you sometimes a lot of times you don't hear that. Like you hear about celebrity A, and but you, you don't know what they're really like off camera. There's a totally different person. But but but. He's that person. He's that guy. Yeah, he really is. And and when I first met him, I, I was young enough, 20, well, I was 14 when I first met him, but then later when we toured together at 22, I was so naive that I thought that's how people were. People were caring and tender and and imaginative and present. And uh, I, when I got home, I realized that people weren't like that that he was the exception to the rule. And uh, for the most part, he, he's, he, I've never met anybody who uh, embodies a, a kind of joyful presence uh, more uh, completely than he does. Hmm. So it was a, it, I learned the hard way. I, you know, I got the good stuff first, and, <laughs> and uh, then I had to realize that you know, the music business was full of the opposite. So uh, I, I, I hung on to him pretty tightly over the years because he was a fountain of uh, wisdom and, and insight, and I, I got accustomed to being treated well. Uh, you know, I wasn't women weren't necessarily treated well, and but Leonard always did. So I, I just kind of joined his family over the years, and and I feel like I'm part of it now. And then I guess the flip side of that is some people, you said you learned it in reverse. Some people never learn, never get that lesson at all, never have that experience, I should say. That's exactly right. And if you do have that experience, it's a life changer. I think that's why people see, seek certain gurus is to have that experience of total presence. But a lot of people don't. It's, it's just the way it is that life is unbalanced that way. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with singer, songwriter, arranger, and collaborator with Leonard Cohen, Jennifer Warrens. And we're talking about the legacy of Leonard Cohen, uh, who would have been 85 um, on, his, on his next birthday. Um, I'm going to recite a line. I'm definitely not going to try to sing the line. I'm, I'm going to recite a line um, from the song A Street. Uh, which is on Leonard Cohen's last CD before he passed, um, You Want It Darker. And the, and the line, um, here's the line, and I'd like to have you say what, what this says about him. I know the burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. Some people say it's empty, but that don't mean it's light. <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines. I'm glad you... <laughs> That's a tricky turn of a, of a phrase. 
Well, he liked it when he could be smarter than everybody else. You know, he, he often he would call me and say, I'll tell you, uh, uh, before I comment on that, uh, he called to say, I've got it, I've got it. And I said, got what? And he says, the last line. And it was, um, uh, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering, there is a crack in everything. And it used to be that, uh, uh, the crack in everything. Anthem. The light behind to see were broken perfectly. That was the line. And it had been written for a, a, a stage play in Montreal. Uh, before, you t- it, before you give your answer, i I got to share something with you now. Okay. Before I started doing this radio show in, in North Carolina, I was a, I, for 15 years I was a pastor. Really? And I would end every worship service. With, you know, you know, at the end of the service, you give the benediction. And my benediction was, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Okay, so, so <laughs> uh, I, I get it. And so, so that's what he worked his whole life to find, were those um, co- combinations of words that opened your heart and got the thing, got his vision of the world, you know, transferred to your heart. And uh, he called to say, I've got it. When he found that's how the light gets in, he'd been working on it like months. And, uh, and, and he, he knew that what he got, when he got it that it was great. He knew it. And uh, we were just laughing on the phone. Like, you got it, you got it. This is great. <laughs> so you found it, I found it, he found it. And what he studied, uh, as you as a pastor, he studied a lot of sacred books, when we were together in the 70s, we'd go back to the Chateau Marmont and after visiting Chatterton's bookstore and he would get, uh, you know, uh, the, the Persian poets and the Kabbalah and the, the, the Koran mm-hmm. and the Bible and he would, he said the reason why certain sentences last and last and last, there's a reason, it's the way they're structured. It, it, it allows the soul to enter the meaning and he wanted to study, so he would read poetry, he'd read Rumi and Hafiz and mm. various, you know, uh, beautiful things. And and he would hear himself phrase, a, a, you know, a sentence that had lasted a long time, like centuries. And he was interested in gaining that skill. And he knew that he had, couldn't study popular music to get it. He had to study really ancient stuff that had lasted a long time. Um, I'm going to just turn this conversation ever so slightly and and, yeah. and talk a little bit more about your work with him. And, and I want you to talk about your your the collaborative process you all uh, created. Did, did it occur? Uh, uh, how did that occur? Was it? What was his process, and how, how did you all work together? Well, he he uh, he he did not include me in the creation of a song. He included me when he had finished the lyric mostly, and he'd gotten a structure mostly in the you know the verse and the chorus and the bridge, and he got that far. And then he would either call and sing it over the phone, or he would send me, you know, a, a, a tape or something, or send me a you know digital file later. And I'm <laughs> and glad you clarified later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, well, we we adapted, but. Uh, uh, and then he would say, you know, what do you do? You hear any? What do you think of these? Do you hear anything? 
And most of the time he'd send me like a group of three or four songs. And he was starting to move in the direction of recording. And I would respond honestly. And then a couple times I said, no, I can't sing on that. It's too black. It's too dark. I don't have anything. I don't have any ideas. Uh, and he, he, he accepted whatever I said. And then uh, if I had a strong feeling about a song, I'd say that one, that one, I, I can, I just see it finished and complete. So then I would, you know, play it over about 4,000 times in my kitchen as I was washing the dishes until I got the understanding of the song deeply embedded into my heart. And then I just let my voice do whatever it wanted to do in the kitchen there. And then when I thought I had a pretty much clear idea, then we'd book a recording studio and I'd go in and sing eight, ten, fifteen voices, and then the engineer and Leonard would pick from those and create, you know, and create a, a watercolor wash behind him, because our voices were very complementary. Mine was so high and clear, and his was so low and resonant, and so it, it always worked. So that was the process, unless... It was something on my record, which then I, I got to say a lot of things about it, which he hated. And <laughs> 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 and he usually gave in to me if I felt strongly about something. But I had to feel strongly. I had to be obviously, clearly uh, moved by something before, you know, before we'd go forward. And then he'd, then he'd call me and he'd say, I've got to work a little longer on that one. Let's set it aside and... So that's how it was. He he tinkered all night long with you know his his lyrics, and the and the melodies. Um, he's quite underestimated as a melody writer. Uh, his melodies are very very beautiful, and uh, he he didn't really get enough compliments for that. Well, we're gonna talk about one of your records now. Your 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 tribute album, tribute album, famous blue raincoat. Right and the songs of Leonard Cohen um, and um, you were you and you were actually now chronologically you were actually the first to record first we take Manhattan yeah mm-hmm. now how t- talk about that how did that come to be uh, well he when he finally uh, realized that we were serious about making this tribute album he thought it would be wise to add something new to it. So he he was dating uh, Dominique Isserman, a famous photographer in Paris at the time, and uh, he she wore a beret like uh, Lisa Sliwa of the Guardian Angels, mm-hmm. and she's a this very simple, direct artiste. I liked her a lot. She was great and is great, and uh, I think that she was the person he might have been writing to because she was a fashion photographer for Christian Dior and Sonia Riquiel, and she was around that whole scene, and they went to New York a lot and Paris a lot. So I think that the song kind of, the seedling of the song came up from that, and then we were in production, so it seemed appropriate for him to play it for us, and we did, and I said, that's just fabulous. And, And, of course the entrance of Stevie Vaughan happened in conjunction with the Grammys. He was at the Grammys, and we got him right after the Grammys at 2 in the morning. And then oh, you mean of the night of the Grammys? Yeah. 
the, the next morning after the Grammys, he came in. He didn't have a guitar. He used, borrowed Roscoe's guitar, and we got him an amp and played him the track, and he played along to it. And did, you know, three tracks or something, three takes, you know, something like that. And, uh, and so we had Stevie Vaughan, and then L Leonard didn't know who Stevie Vaughan was, so we took Leonard to the Hollywood Bowl to see Stevie Vaughan play, and uh, Roscoe and I took Leonard, and on the walk home after the concert, nobody spoke. It was We were all silent. Because Stevie, if you'd ever seen yeah, Stevie I've seen Vaughan, him in concert. I saw him in I had the privilege yeah, of seeing him in it, concert. It'll silence you any yeah. day. So we were walking in silence to the car. Finally got in the car. Leonard said, I finally understand now what the blues is. And Roscoe said, you know, what do you understand? And he said... It's talking to your baby. <laughs> hmm. So that's how he heard Stevie. Was it? Stevie was talking to his baby the whole night long. You know, sticking with the, uh, you know, I, I guess not long. I guess a, a year after um, Leonard Cohen passed, I, I, I remember. I don't know if you remember this or not, but uh, NBC's um, Brian Williams. I should remember that name, Byron Williams. Brian Williams. Brian Williams. Uh, lifted a lyric from uh, First We Take Manhattan when uh, we were shooting missiles uh, over the Syrian airspace, and uh, he, you know, and, and Brian Williams quipped, "You know, I'm I'm guided by our beauty. When I see this, I'm guided by our beauty. To, to, you know, as Navy destroyers are, are shooting Tomahawk missiles, and and he, there was a lot of pushback because that just seemed so antithetical." Um, to not only that song, but to the ethos of Leonard Cohen, and it, I don't know if you recall that incident. And did you have, if you did recall that, did you have a certain feeling hearing that Brian Williams said that? I, I didn't really know about that, but I, there has been some confusion as to what Leonard Cohen meant. But you know, Leonard was prophetic, and he he could see things ahead, coming ahead. And a lot of times the darkness of his lyrics were offensive to me because I, I would say, you know, the world, you shouldn't give people those kinds of dreams. I'm a lighter person, but, uh, but he saw things coming, and he had to write about them. So I, I think that when he wrote uh, First Week Take Manhattan, he might have seen or felt or had a felt sense of uh, what was going to happen on, into in nine eleven, he I think that's entirely possible. He felt that there was a a darkness coming to New York, and uh, he didn't he didn't say that he didn't articulate that, nor would he ever. But but if he has a strong sense of things of the world going this way or that, they would creep into his lyrics, and that's about as specific as I can get. Right, it's probably safe to say that he 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 wouldn't anticipate. That um, uh, they be used to justify bombing another country. <laughs> that what? They wouldn't be his lyrics wouldn't be used to justify bombing another country. That I think that's we'd be safe in that, wouldn't we? Yes, we would. <laughs> yeah, no, he he was a, he was the lover of mankind par excellence. Uh, talk a little, if you would, about his evolution. You know, stylistically, when you when you the two of you first got together, because he, you know, so what in the 
eighties started be using more uh synthetic sounds and then and also his voice changed over time so you know <laughs> you know you know for some who worked with him since the seventies how, how how did you receive those changes well, an artist has to change or you die you know it's just you've got to you've got to try to find out how you fit into the present day mm-hmm. situation so he he didn't he was tired of being told what his music sounded like so he got a little keyboard and started you know fussing with that trying to write his own tracks because he had let Bob Johnston and different people you know kind of steer his songs in a certain direction and he didn't like the direction they they were always he didn't always like the direction that they went in so he he was grabbing a hold of it whatever he could do and 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 then that little keyboard was one thing that uh, you know allowed him to write and he learned how to program it and so yeah that his voice changed because he was doing a lot of zen meditation and the chanting that they do is very low like the tibetan monks mm-hmm. and it lowered his voice and uh, he didn't you know and he also smoked so for a while and uh, so the uh, his voice changed quite considerably to, with all that uh that uh, that stuff, you know, right. and um, and I felt that he was diluted somewhat by uh, the forces around him. You know, he he was willing to try and make mistakes, which is every artist must have that kind of uh, a courageous freedom to do that. So. I don't think he really, you know, veered off 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 track very often. But I personally loved his warm, moaning poetry and a, a you know an acoustic guitar. I I loved it. However, we we felt that his lyrics were so dense with imagery and so layered and weighty and beautiful. That they he he deserved to have one extravagant record, one that said a lot and cost a lot, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's why we made famous Blue Raincoat because we had heard most of his songs set in you know like Suzanne, mm-hmm. and uh, we we had been, you know part we were part of the band that you know went behind him in '79 and other tours. And we 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 knew that there was an orchestra and a choir in a lot of those songs <laughs> that hadn't been released. So we put we we made that record to to let the world know that they weren't just listening to any old ordinary song. Is there a and, I, and I'm talking about just this moment because I know it, it changes. But is there a specific Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen song that uh, either from your collaborations or? Or or another song that, that speaks to you in this moment. I I've, I've been a part of so many songs. Um, I there isn't one, but what I am attached to is our process and and how uh, you know how we were able to bring forth beauty when we did. Um, my friendship with him. That's what I remember. But I don't I don't I'm not attached to any one particular song. Mm-hmm. I think Alexander leaving is very well constructed and beautiful, really surprising in its con- in its um composition, the way it's put together. 
And I'm and I'm not terribly a fan of Hallelujah. I know the world loves it, but I think there's other songs that that uh, you know are more beautiful. Uh, you 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 mentioned earlier in the conversation him uh, Leonard Cohen being a prophet. So we're going to allow you your moment to be a prophet. A uh, hundred years from now, will we still be singing? And I won't mention Hallelujah. Actually, it's not one of my favorites either. Um, uh, will, we, will we still be singing Tower Song and Everybody Knows and, and Anthem? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I'm happy to say that Tower Song is a, it, all that dude, you know, do dumb, dumb, dumb mm-hmm. stuff. Is, that's just me being silly. And I said, hey, I got a wild idea. Let's do this. <laughs> and he loved it. Uh, so I'm, I'm proud to say that the, there was so much space and difference between his, nat- his nature and my nature that when we came together, it made a nice, fleshed-out composition. You know, I added something that he didn't, and, he, and obviously I couldn't do anything he did. So, uh, yeah. Well, well, then you'll be happy to know that Tower of Song is one of the songs that I listen to when I'm on that bike the stationary bike at 5.30 in the morning. T- Tower <laughs> Song is part of my playlist. I just th- <laughs> oh, oh, that makes me want to get on the stationary bike right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. You know, there's, there's so many songs and moments in songs that are just killer. Uh, I, I, I know how much he was attached to the, 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 off the last album, the Hineni. What is that song called? The one with the the, the Montreal synagogue choir. Oh, he's got a, he's got a couple choir like songs on "You Want It Darker," doesn't he? Uh, yeah. What what are the titles of those songs? Okay, you know, I'm, I'm, there's there's one that where the choir sings a, 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 a Hebrew word that is sacred, and the word is Hineni, and it it translates to "I am here, Lord," and. Uh, he had sent that song. Oh, that song, You Want It Darker. Yes. Is that the song? Yeah, You Want It Darker okay. is a song. Okay, great. So I told him I didn't want to sing on You Want It Darker. <clears throat> but then he, he called back and said, <clears throat> he said, uh, or no, Adam called me and said, Leonard wants you to sing the Hineni. Is Adam his son? Yes. Yes. And, uh, and he was helping uh, Leonard finish the, the record. And he said, Dad wants you to sing the Hineni. It's an ancient word, and and uh, it has a special meaning. And uh, so I I kind of researched it a little bit, and then I went into the studio, and I couldn't get it. I'm not Jewish, and I'm not ca- a cantor in that soulful style that Leonard grew up with. So I didn't feel confident, and I I told him so. I said, you know, that doesn't feel true. That doesn't ring true to me. And as it turns out, he then hired the 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 choir from his old synagogue, his mother's old synagogue, and or so it, I was told, and and uh, that was the last song that was played at his memorial service, mm. and I think that that is a thread that runs through a lot of his music. He was really trying to get back to a certain kind of purity that he he understood from synagogue. Do you have a uh a memory uh, of Leonard Cohen that, that, that you can share uh, with, uh, with our listeners in closing? 
A memory? <laughs> well, well, I'm giving you the whole, the wide spectrum to pick, to pick that's, one. That's too big. <laughs> Anyone you want, just that comes in. So we're, 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 like, we're talking about being in the moment. So just in this moment. So if I ask you tomorrow, you might have a different memory. So. <laughs> well, he, he changed my life. I, 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 there wasn't one single moment that, that, uh, there's so much to tell you that I, I would I would be skipping over something really wonderful in the process. Um, once he gave me a necklace with a, a picture frame hanging from a chain, and in the picture frame was a picture of me. And he gave that to me when I was 22. And uh, in a way, that's what he was doing all along, was giving me me, giving me myself. And uh, he was always my best supporter and always my my rabbi and, uh, you know, a teacher and friend and, you know, and silly. We did a lot of silly things, too. Uh, he taught me how to be uh, close, you know, how to be close with someone. And I, I can't think of any one singular there's so many little little pieces of the puzzle that I'm staring, still figuring out. All I know is that I miss him really a lot, and he loved everybody that he was close to. He just you won't get it. You won't get anybody saying anything else. I'm sure. He really touched everybody. However, I think that uh, he might not want to be deified. He might not want to be uh, an icon. You know, and be treated like such a, you know, Lord Byron. I don't think I don't think he would really want that. He liked um, being a writer, and he wanted to be a really good one, and he succeeded. That was Jennifer Warrens. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Welcome back. Tonight's closing remarks will come by way of Leonard Cohen's live 2008 London performance of Anthem. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Bottom soul 
out again The dove is never free Ring a bell That still can ring Forget your perfect offering There is a crack A crack Everything That's how the light gets in We asked for signs And the signs were sent The birth betrayed The marriage spent comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. 
Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Well, my friends are gone and my hair is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play And I'm crazy for love But I'm not coming on I'm just paying my rent every day In the Tower of Song I said to Hank Williams How lonely does it get? Hank Williams hasn't answered yet, but I hear him coughing all that long. Oh, a hundred floors above me in the Tower of Song.